0: All right, it is January 17th It is a Wednesday Cold, cold morning January, starting off 2018 I have one of my big homies As far as someone I look up to I think more in conventional American language We call, what I call Big Homies Mentors uh, Someone that has combined culture Representation of Detroit, the black people that have existed in Detroit and doing massive events, massive events, sometimes not necessarily welcoming only black folks. When we think about uh, what happens in and around downtown and events in Midtown, throughout communities, throughout neighborhoods, with schools, with dancers, with singers, with band players, with African percussionists, reggae artists, blues artists, R&B artists, jazz artists, hip-hop artists, spoken word artists, and any other type of performer. um, Someone you should meet in the city of Detroit is N'Gia Kai. Mama N'Gia Kai, how are you? I'm great today. I appreciate being here with you, Kari. Yes, yes. All right. So um, now that we have you here, uh, so much that I don't even know necessarily about your story but we're gonna start like almost from scratch. Uh, City of Detroit, uh, you're from the city. What led you into this love with arts and performing arts and events and where you're at now?
1: Yeah, you know, it's probably my upbringing, my family, and just growing up in the black community, arts is just central, even if it's uh, related to the church. The arts are just central to, you're growing up and the rhythm and the music and the appreciation for the color and the movement, it's all in there. So I think essentially there, my mother was the one at our church who wrote the plays, directed the plays, decorated the church basement for events and things. And I was her little protege. And uh, she started me out real early learning poetry and going to various church locations or social organizations within the black community. I would do public speaking and that kind of thing real early from the age of four actually what church Mm -hmm. Uh, Mount Olive Baptist Church and Mount Olive Baptist Church uh, had the building there on Woodward uh, built a was the first black church to build from uh, the ground up a building on Woodward Avenue and it's right there on Woodward between Boston and Chicago Hmm. Uh, the church would have been a hundred years old in uh, 2016 but the uh, Pastor there in the congregation lost that building and and a whole lot of things had to change the name of the deal and so uh, just missed its uh, century mark but uh, the church was built by black folks basically coming up here from the south looking for new economic opportunities and hoping to find less oppression.
0: Okay, so that's like a stone's throw from the Gordy Mansion, basically. It, yeah,
1: yeah, it is. As a matter of fact, when the church started, it was on Farnsworth between Bobian and St. Antoine. That's what I grew up understanding, but St. Antoine, I found out, is, <laughs> is the proper pronunciation. So the church was uh, on that block, started in a uh, what had been a Jewish synagogue, and you know, following that whole history where... Uh, when black people moved into Detroit there was this one particular area rectangular area of Detroit that black people could live in mm-hmm. and uh, the Jews who moved in here also found uh, discrimination so they were in a particular area when they were able to acquire some economic opportunities they moved out of that area black people moved in and that's what happened on Farnsworth and the church moved into a old Jewish synagogue mm-hmm. um, and so um it happened that at the corner of, of uh, Farnsworth and St. Antoine, uh, what we called Old Man Gordy, Barry's father, had his printing company. And my mom had a delicatessen. She and her first husband and then with uh, my dad, who was her second husband, they had a delicatessen across the street from the Gordys. So all the elders in that neighborhood knew the Gordys, uh, even to the point when the children gave the parents uh, their 50th anniversary they invited several members from this church uh, who had been friends of their family for a lot of years
0: ain't that something Mm -hmm. okay so entrepreneurship is something that you've been groomed in I had no idea about the delicatessen or anything (laughs) else so you're just sparking more and more questions where was the delicatessen Uh, what led to that form of business and what was that like
1: Yeah, well, I was a very, very young child. I have memories of being three years old in the basement of that delicatessen surrounded by cases, you know, stacked cases of chips and pops. And, you know, it was like the wonderland that I remember. Uh, My mother acquired the delicatessen from her first husband. He died early in the marriage. uh, And so she acquired it. And then when she married my father, my father really wasn't the entrepreneurial type. Okay. And so he convinced her within a short period of time to actually sell the space. And when I was growing up, I had some ideas about uh, some entrepreneurial activities. My father would talk me out of them every time because he really was, you know, he told me one time that he wanted to know what his work hours were, knew when his checks were coming and not have to work so hard because the uh, delicatessen was, you know, constant work you had to constantly stock restock work it clean it you know constantly the paperwork and all the things involved it wasn't really his thing and so uh the whole entrepreneurial deal for me didn't come back until many years later when I was uh probably in my late 30s uh when I really started turning back towards an entrepreneurial lifestyle
0: okay now that type of spirit as I do think that it's that Echoing thought process and that ethic, uh, as I was talking to someone we mutually know, Frida Sampson mm-hmm. earlier today, like some things can get ingrained into our thought process, and one of the things ingrained into the, your thought process as a child was entrepreneurship is difficult, and working a job is, I guess, a, a easier approach towards life, uh, whether it be. Um, plan that way or just that was the interpretation so what do you think were some of the obstacles was it just the 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 ebb and flow of it all of your father like he just didn't want to get to that grind or was it more so that at the time you had a lot of opportunities with employment that just seemed to be uh lower fruit on the tree as they say
1: well um I would say that, you know, everything is development and uh, it took me a while to develop what it was to come into an understanding of what it was I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I also think it was a process of trying to fulfill that work ethic, you know, of being able to get a job and hold a job and acquire a position in a job that my father coming off of a sharecroppers situation, you know, just one step above uh, enslavement down in um, in Louisiana, and my mother coming from a father who owned the family owned land and her my mother's father had people sharecrop for him. Hmm. And so there were two different uh, experiences towards, there. Yeah. And so there was that. But after a while, for me, it just became a question of my character and my personality. Okay. And after a while, you know, it just was true for me that what I found as a lifestyle and a work life that fit me the best was an entrepreneurial life. But I came into it uh, slowly and learned as I was doing. You know, I had a lot of on-the-job training to get to understand myself as an entrepreneur and as a consultant, as opposed to being an employee.
0: Okay, so let's talk about that. Independent contracting, and a little bit before that, you talked about two different perspectives of even the upbringing of your parents. Mm-hmm. You had a mother that grew up in... A spirit of entrepreneurship and then a father that grew up in hard work, hard labor, as I can only imagine the hard work and the effort it takes in sharecropping mm-hmm. to make ends meet. To end literally. up with nothing at the end of the year. Yes. Mm-hmm. To make ends meet literally. Mm-hmm. So um just in in life and approach, just as you look back as I, I explore and think about this, like what leads certain people to entrepreneurship and what leads people away from it. Um Did you notice just a difference in thought process and approaches and and thinking through and theories and systems between your mom and your dad just through life as you think back on it?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, um, they were different characters. Mm -hmm. You know, I can give you astrological and numerology about them that would (laughs) would explain them. But I can also just say they were different characters. And, um, you know... um, what, I, what I've come to recognize about life is that, you know, we each show up here on this planet and we each bring with us this energy, like, you know, that song, I'm not my skin, I'm, I'm the uh, spirit, I would say, that dwells within. And so each of us comes with this, with our own divine spark, uh, our own uh, energy and our own path that we have to forge in order to continue to evolve and develop. Uh, Mm -hmm. that energy and so it is true that um, we are often molded and shaped by the circumstances and the people that we are born into and that we encounter along our journey Mm -hmm. but I also know that there is a energy especially for me there's an energy that just says look I've got to be expressed and um, we're going to have to figure out a way to do this, G, because uh, I'm going to have to come out. And mm-hmm. so that just came for me. It was, uh, you know, I'd, I'd say I didn't consciously step into it. I just started to do things. And as I did them, I was making certain choices, and those choices worked out for me. Like the first time somebody offered me a consultancy, and I took it, I had to go ask my girlfriend, who I knew was a consultant, like, exactly how do you spell that and how do you form that? And uh, I had to go back to her a couple of times during those first couple of years to re, uh, refine and, and make clarity with how I was to approach the persons, the clients, as opposed to employers and, you know, how to really make that work. So uh, that's something that I... Uh, luckily had the you know the contacts who were willing to share with me and to help me grow in that um uh also you know there's uh, my father said one time um he said you know and Gia it was at a point when I had I had circumstances I was very disappointed about in my life and in the choices that I had made and um my father I thought was getting ready to you know just give me the blow, uh, you know, to let me know how I had just disappointed him, too. Instead, he said, uh, you know, N'Gia, you have always heard a different drummer, and I'm really proud of you, he said, because you have continued to find a way to follow that drummer, he said, and it's hard for people who are not following the mainstream, and I'm proud of you that you're strong enough to to keep moving towards that rhythm that you hear. And that was really, really huge for me. I really needed that at that moment, and uh, I was surprised he gave it to me because he was the more conservative of the parents, and I just assumed he would have that critique. Instead, he gave me that encouragement at a really crucial time that helped me to say, okay, well, I'm gonna do it better, but I'm gonna continue
0: to be me. Okay, so as you talk about doing better, continuing to be you, Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that I'm finding in growing my business and it's cool to have a context for success through people such as yourself and there are others that it can be real. It can happen. Uh, You can sustain a family doing this. Um, But I also do believe that there are certain challenges in our community especially in the black community and this just may be more resounding throughout america but especially in the black community that energetically accepting success that it can't happen can be difficult within itself like placing that those obstacles before us uh all of the reasons why and why not and how it won't work are like preconceived notions like embedded into the thought process of what can happen and what's a reality for black people um i'm reading the autobiography of malcolm x again like i like to read it ever so often and just that whole chapter where malcolm is class president and being embraced by so many of the people in this white school in lansing but at the same time when he's like you know I want to be a lawyer and it's like well you know no negro can be a lawyer and just that thought process as he's comparing his grades to the students that are being encouraged to be an an attorney was like an overwhelming weight being placed on him during this time as the trauma of his father being murdered and everything that's happening with his mother uh, looking to try to find some balance for his family like it's like weight upon weight upon weight so you starting off in this world of entrepreneurship were entering the world through the thought process of a Detroit that's so conditioned in labor movement, having a job, getting a paycheck. I mean, like I always say, my parents met at a cost of adjusted living. <laughs> Uh, party you know what i'm saying so like things like this is just like this is like the ethic and this is the reality what was that like what what was it like to be a person like nah i'm gonna march to this different beat as your as your father said in a time and era where it was just like almost being looked at like okay uh what are you about to do
1: You know, at a certain point in my life, and I can't pinpoint the point, but I know that at a certain point in my life, I got to recognize that to satisfy me, I was going to just have to be different sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I remember my father, when I was a kid, he would say, you just do these things to vex me. And I would say, you know, Dad, (laughs) I really wasn't even thinking about you. Mm -hmm. I was doing what came up in my head, and I didn't have a question as to whether or not You know, this was going to be something you liked. It didn't dawn on me to think of that because I was thinking for myself to do for self. So I've just always had that somewhere in there, in the the middle of being raised Baptist and being raised by two parents from the South and being in the um, midst of, uh, you know, the whole uh, civil rights and then black rights and then, you know, the Vietnam anti-war and then the women's movement and all these Movements that I have uh, grown up in and participated in or been moved by, Mm -hmm. uh, influenced and affected by, uh, you know, all of that served to create the environment and the support to allow me to just continue to, you know, find my way on my own path. Um, It is true that... uh, It is true that there were times when people made remarks, uh, made critiques, uh, gave advice that kept me from following a certain thing at that time, making me doubt myself or doubt the decision or whatever. But in the end, I'm still here and I'm still me. And I had a college friend uh sister I hadn't talked to in lots of years uh, since we graduated from college. And she called me, uh, you know, maybe a decade ago or something. And she said, you know, we would talk to catch up. And then she said, And Gia, do you feel like you're a success? And I started to immediately say yes. And then I hesitated because I started thinking about what her concept of success would be and whether or not she would see what I was living as successful. Because a lot of my friends had much more of a middle class, upper class intention or definition for success. And, uh, but even after I thought about it, I said, yeah, I really do. She said, well, what makes you feel successful? I said, because I'm able to take care of myself and my family and still be me. That I've been able to carve out a lifestyle that feels uh, true to me and, uh, And still, you know, succeed within the economics of America to stay somewhat stable. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was a big deal because the the push for a young black female at the time I was coming up, who made you know straight A's and was very articulate. My dad was a big reader, and I used to sit in his room with him and read. He was in um, going to uh, college. And I would sit in his room and read his books. He had a lot of literature books, and I liked to read the plays and the histories and that kind of thing. And so I had a lot of information, and I was doing all this public speaking, so I was pretty articulate. And passing tests in school was real easy for me for the most part. And so I was doing that. And so it got me a lot of attention, a lot of opportunities. And so people intended for me to become their definition of success. Uh, one time, Nellis Saunders, who uh, used to write for the uh, Michigan Chronicle and was uh, she had this whole church woman um, activities that would happen throughout the year. And she was also very involved with the local uh, Democratic uh, party party Sorry. here in Detroit. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. She was a great friend of my family and my mother's and also was a member of Mount Olive Baptist Church. And so when I was six years old, she had the Chronicle to interview me. And so she was there for the interview. And so uh, when I was asked, what is it that you want to be when you grow up? I said happy because really that was that's pretty much my (laughs) to be honest, that's pretty much where I'm at. I Mm want to be self fulfilled. I want to be self satisfied. And um, so I said happy. And she said she told me, hold on just a minute. She said, no, baby, no, a smart little girl like you. You've got to be looking at, you know, a doctor, a lawyer, engineer, something like that. Well, nobody in my family or in my immediate environment were those things. And so I was trying to figure out. So I remembered, you know, Perry Mason and Judd for the defense and, you know, look like they were very successful people, but were also freeing people and helping people. So I told her I wanted to be a lawyer and I kept that going all the way till I started college. Um you know because i that was the mindset of that time was if you had these skills if you had this articulation if you were making these good grades if you had the capacity to move in these societies successfully then we needed you to become one of these things who would be you know the ebony uh image Mm -hmm. for our people Mm -hmm. and uh it just wasn't satisfying to me to do that. I I tried pre-law in college and I was very disappointed when the professor told me to quit asking so many questions. I was reading. I would go home, I would read, highlighting my books, come back with all these questions. And he said, you know, I see your hand up there all the time, but you don't interrupt me. You take notes and you pass these tests and that's how you'll become a lawyer. I went and talked to him on the side and I was shocked that it wasn't a notion of really encouraging an eager beaver who wanted to free the people, <laughs> you know, that wasn't his mission. And um, mm-hmm. so I, was, I, I had to come to some understandings and realities about American society and uh, what what I, I, I had to define for myself what this game was and to figure out how I was going to exist within it and still feel that I was being true to me. I didn't feel that those types of uh, professions and executive positions were really going to be satisfactory to me. Mm-hmm. And so um, I ended up uh, changing from a pre-law major to, uh, uh, to a um, film and television. A film. I was a film and broadcast journalism major and started working with independent filmmakers Started uh, going extracurricular to the shoelace, uh that were in the area there in D.C. I went to Howard. And so the shoelace that were there uh, and started getting culturally more astute, which is what I thought Howard was going to provide me. So I was so happy when I found these people who were dedicated, committed to the advancement of the people and to uh, adopting cultural uh, knowledge and lifestyles. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, I grew in that, grew in the independent film uh, industry that was there at the time and uh, did that. And then um, when I finally ended up back here in Detroit, realized that the majority of the opportunities were uh, within the mainstream television or advertising and then saw this opportunity to use my skills to produce events I went that direction and who knew it would turn out to be such a big deal and become the thing that I do in life uh, as far as
0: uh, career or profession is uh, concerned. Okay, so exploring that alone, first let's go to Howard University. When did you graduate and what was that like then? What What was Howard like then compared to Detroit for you and in your interpretation?
1: Yeah, I ended up being, I was, I went, I was, I did not go straight through school. I would go for a year or so and then I would take off a year or so and then i come back. And so I did that. I was in the class of, I was officially when I started in the class of 1976, but I ended up graduating um, in, uh, let's see, I graduated in December of 81 and walked with the class of uh, of, uh, May in 82.
0: Okay, mm-hmm. what was what was DC and Howard like then? It was
1: fantastic, I'm saying, I really, for me, I was so happy that that was my choice. At the mm-hmm. time I graduated, I had done really well, so I had opportunity, and you know, there were abundant scholarships at that time for uh, uh, black youth who were excelling academically. So I could have gone to any school in the nation, actually, and I had a lot of them pursuing me, but I wanted to get my black thing together and um, I thought if I went south, I would probably have a lot of problems because I felt very confrontational at that time. So I went to Howard U and I'm glad I did. I learned a lot. I had a lot of uh, really positive influences there uh, between the, the professors as well as within the community. Like I say, I just did a lot of extracurricular uh, learning within the culture. Um, And, uh, you know, became vegetarian there. Howard was fantastic. My girlfriend went to Eastern at the same time. And so at Eastern, I think out of her four years of college, there was one and maybe two concerts that were put on there that were um, um, that uh, was by a, a black entertainer. While at Howard, I saw everybody. We, we would get tired of going to the concerts. It was just everything was there. Everybody was coming through there. And mm-hmm. not only just concerts, but lectures and, you know, um, just saw everybody. The Dr. Ivan Van Sertema was on campus then. Even Charles Diggs, after they uh, destroyed his career uh, as a representative, uh, mm-hmm. U.S. House of Representatives, Uh, Howard University gave him position on campus there and I got to sit and talk with him Uh, and I got in I stopped being in uh, a political science major and got his uh, became a film uh, and broadcast journalism major and so there I met so many of the um, uh, progressive uh, and international artists Uh, Usman Simbain the father of African cinema he was would come through there, and uh, we had opportunity to meet him. I got to go to Africa uh, with the Howard delegation the first time that they went to the uh, FESPACO, the Festival of uh, Pan-African Cinema. There was just so much. I mean, there there was just so much, such a development for me within the uh, maybe 10 years or so that I was in the D.C. area and in school and out of school. And um, just a great growing for me, Uh, gave me a basis of skills and helped to organize some of my natural talents so that I could come back here and begin to do these things that led me to doing the things that I do now. Okay,
0: so let's talk about that. Late or early 80s at that point in time, Mm -hmm. Detroit, when was the year you came back and what did you get going with?
1: Well, what had happened was I had gotten engaged and decided not to get married. I moved back to Detroit. I uh, That was when WGPR was just getting ready to open its TV station or had just opened the TV station down there on Jefferson. So I tried to get hired down there. But at that time, they were only really hiring people who had worked at TV 20 or something and um, the old TV 20. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't get in there, and then felt like I say, folks in advertising were trying to nab me. But I just never wanted. I, I had skills, and I'm, I was good at persuading folks. I'm a good storyteller, and I just felt that, I just didn't want to sell cigarettes and liquor and you know, dream fan, fantastical dreams to my people. That wasn't, uh, was going to satisfy me. And so, I after a while, I saw a uh, ad. In the newspaper, this is one of the things. As a broadcast uh, journalism major, I had a professor that had us read six newspapers every week, and several of them were dailies. So I had gotten a habit of reading the newspaper from front to cover, you know, because he would just pick something out of the paper and quiz us on it every da- every class. Mm-hmm. So I had just this habit, and so I saw in the paper this ad, uh, and it sound. I said, "Well, if I can produce films." I could produce events, and I had grown up doing events with my mother at the church and in the, in the community. So I applied for that job and got it, and that was with the Detroit Festival of the Arts. And so that was a major international cultural arts festival that happened here in Detroit for 20-some years uh, down in the Wayne State area, and uh, that was a great opportunity uh to learn how to you know to grow my skills to be able to handle an event of that size uh, to manage such large budgets and so many people so many artists um, to learn how to uh, bring international artists into the country uh, you know the visas and the various um, negotiations and logistics required for that and um, I did that for uh, quite a number of years and then they began to uh, create Campus Martius downtown and one of the board members is involved with Campus Martius and he realized that they didn't have a special events team to even handle the grand opening of that park and so he came and asked would the team from the Festival of the Arts come down and help them get that done and we did Mm -hmm. and from that uh, I've been there ever since and I now do... um, uh, program uh, program, and uh, manage, curate, and produce uh, those events at Campus Marshes Park. And now uh, we've gotten up
0: to a total of seven downtown parks that we're engaged with. Okay. All right. So with that being said, you broad-brushed a lot of different things. And really the introduction for our relationship is connected through african Center education and your relationship with the Shuleys there in DC, which I didn't know about, also led to the African-centered education movement that was going on in the city of Detroit. And your mom, I've known your family for, like actually through <laughs> through your kids <laughs> for mm-hmm, years. Mm-hmm. But how did that connection grow?
1: Yeah, I met a brother in DC who introduced me to Ujima Shuley. And Ujma Shule had every Friday an, an activity called Friday Night is Family Night, where they invited the community in after they closed the school, cleaned it up. The sisters would cook and you could come in and there would be presentations, uh, a film, a uh, guest speaker, a discussion, a gathering. There was always something there every Friday night. And uh, it was further Developing my attachment to involvement in and knowledge of the culture, as we call it, and um, became aware of this independent school movement. And while I was in D.C., I actually came back to Detroit for something. And there's a lot of story. And uh, like I say, I'm a storyteller, so I talk you to death. But I, um, I had met some people, some Episcopal priests, while I was in college. I actually had a job with the campus. Uh, chaplain uh, Mm -hmm. who was an Episcopal priest so uh, I came back to Detroit and I knew that uh, I can't think of his last name but Father Tony was here and was involved and that's where uh, Mommy Mani Humphrey started uh, Aisha Shuley was through his church and so when I went to visit their school that Shuley I became abreast of that. So when I came back to Detroit and uh, my family started to grow, then um, I was uh, very eager to place them into the african Center school Mm -hmm. network. As a matter of fact, Indidica is my oldest daughter. And Mm -hmm. so when I went to introduce her to Mama Imani and Mama in to interview to see if we could get into school, they had a deal where you had to be two years old uh, before you could come to school. So indidika was 18 months and I had a job with uh, the PBS station here and we were producing a national show and I was just really needed some regular, uh, you know, um, care for indidika and I wanted her in an African centered environment. So I'll go there. I take Indideka with me. I'm sitting there. I'm talking with uh, the two mamas and uh, indidika gets up. She pushes her chair back under the table. She went and got a little, she had been, uh, she got some scissors and she was cutting and she got a broom and cleaned up her area. And they were like, wow, she's really advanced. She's 18 months. I said, yeah. I said, and she's fully potty trained. It was like, wow. And uh, I said, look, she's showing you. She'll work hard. She'll clean up. <laughs> uh, it's a great she- memory because that's how she got into school mm-hmm. at 18 months. They supported me in being a a new, uh, you know, a single parent at that time and um, uh, coming back into the city trying to get grounded. And so we started at the Shulay, moved on into uh, Insorma Institute. And uh, I'm a definite supporter and proponent for African-centered education. And at this time, given the raggediness of the systems here in this city, I really am uh, behind the scenes looking for opportunities for us to educate our children. We we've got to take it on the the state, the city, the you know everybody is letting us know we're no longer interested. We're no longer interested to invest in you in educating your children. When I went to public school, I had excellent public school education i really did and i was not at special schools although i did get into the classes you know for those who were making good grades mm-hmm. but we just had you know we were coming into these schools that had been white dominated mm-hmm. uh, as at least that's where i was living i was living in these integrated neighborhoods newly integrated neighborhoods and the schools had been uh white student populations and so they still had well-trained teachers Mm-hmm. And they still, even through some prejudices and racisms that were there for many of them, they still reacted to a child who could excel. And I just happened to really get a good foundation um, that propelled me towards uh Cass Tech High School and then to Howard University, so.
0: Yeah, I, I do think, looking back at it and interacting with so many different people, um, connected to Aisha Shule because mm-hmm. I was a student at Aisha Shule and also Nataki Taliba, but mm-hmm. it's a different it's a different level of confidence that I was given as I talk about like hopping that hurdle for knowing that success is possible. Yes. From being a child in an African center school. Cause Lord knows. I, when I was at Aisha Shule I was I was probably giving gray hairs to every one of <laughs> those. Every one of those teachers, (laughs) but in it, I was still being taught so Mm -hmm. many ethics about black leadership, uh, black organization going back to Africa. So it wasn't necessarily like Martin Luther King did the civil rights movement and Mm -hmm. everything was not in response to some form of oppression Mm -hmm. brought upon black people by white supremacy, racism, or whatever you want to call it. Um, I'm going to say white supremacy. It was more so, you know, different things about the Kushite nation and the Dogon nation and the Maasai warriors and so many different tribes and the thought process of mathematics. Even as people kind of joke, uh, I guess, of being pro-black now as being a hotep, but mm-hmm. the thought processes in the sciences developed through Imhotep. You know, so much stuff I just don't even pull people to the side and and you know, give my two cents on because it's like why why get into this discussion? But a lot of that I was being taught at the age of five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven of who these figures were, what they represented, uh before the transatlantic slave trade of these legacies, dynasties, um, systems theories all of this was just being ingrained into me like at a very young age so the thought process of being black doing certain things were not you know it was not out of out of scope or out of reach and yeah. thought
1: yeah my my mother used to say something that i said i wanted to uh i wanted to uh make a make a movie around this this statement she made and she said that the problem the young people have nowadays is that uh, they didn't get to see it happen she said we saw our parents make a way out of no way and I think about that you know that each generation gets a little further away from that past generation than the two generations back you know their experience their reality And uh, so they had they just didn't see they don't they don't necessarily always know how to get over, you know, because they didn't have that experience. But I will say too. just think about that, that um, you were in you were impacted and and uh, what was poured into you. At From a very young age mm-hmm. was a positive understanding of yourself and a positive expectation about your possibilities mm-hmm. by people who were exampling that to you, mm-hmm. because even though you were five and may not have known it at that moment, but here were black people who had built and sustained an institution and that's where you were showing up every day. And so they were exampling uh, it,
0: not just talking about it. Oh, the the older I get, and rest in peace to Mama Anamoi and Mm -hmm. Mama Imani Humphrey. But the older I get, the more respect I have for Mama Imani. Every day, like I I think to myself of what she did, and even Carmen Namdi with Nataki Taliba, like to do what they did when they did it at a time in a city that. Definitely, it's it's pockets of black money that existed, that still exists in Detroit, more so than a lot of other cities, but still the resources to do something like that when a lot of the arguments will be, why not just go to Catholic school?
1: Yep, absolutely. And uh, you know, this is what's so interesting to me and and you know i I can't claim to have been part of a research team that uh, you know did the study that did the study and wrote and the, the book. analysis. Right. To, but to, yeah. you know, sometimes you just observe some things. And one of my observations at this stage of uh, my uh, existence is how much we are in the same position even though it looks different. So don't get me wrong. I'm certainly aware of the fact that no one had to unshackle me for me to come over here to meet with you today. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have to get papers to allow me to leave my plantation to come to your plantation. You know, it's, we recognize the reality of the change and uh, we respect and appreciate all of what has transpired and all of those who have gotten us to this point. But our power position hasn't changed very much. Uh, Having the power to really affect uh, our neighborhoods and our lives and our outcomes is still very limited and still rests within the authority of others. And I've Mm -hmm. come to... uh, I've come to recognize that, you know, there's and, you know, I could get really esoteric about this thing. So sometimes, you know, it's not really what uh, folks are really looking to hear from me. But I think that um, this earth life, you know, this opportunity to materialize and take possession of a physical body and to move through this planet with so many others who have done similarly, you know, has a unique set of possibilities and potentials to it. And each of us finds ourselves in some uniqueness. It happens that I'm born into a line, a lineage that goes back through an enslavement and then on to some majesty. Mm-hmm and somebody else is from some situation where they go back to a war that you know prior to the war their folks were peasants to a feudal lord you know i mean Mm -hmm. there's a story to all of us and um i think that one of the most important things is to really get to know that story I think it's so important for children born into uh born as Af- descendants of Africa in America it's so important for them to have a firm understanding of their history and of their divinity because I think that that's how you make a slave you convince a person that they have no divinity and then at that point then you show them the picture of god's son who looks like you and you say therefore you know i'm the god for you Mm -hmm. and then that person and especially if that person was born into that condition you know or surrounded by other people born into that condition who've never ventured very far and have very little else to uh, yeah
0: it's (laughs) the elephant with the shackle as they say yes and then exactly they take the shackle off and you never and go. you just keep standing there never goes <laughs> beyond where that shackle you limited. just keep standing
1: there because you don't even have a concept harriet mm-hmm. tubman that was the depth of what she said well if i'd known mm-hmm. if they had known they were slaves i could have freed more of them but people just you know it's yeah it,
0: the psychological
1: conditioning
0: yes which kind of shifts yes. to another point um in this whole, the, the context of which I understand the, the blindness of some people towards what racism exists in mm-hmm, life is mm-hmm. as a man, I, I recognize so much misogyny, objectification and sexism that just exists in me. And it's like, man, I just, you know, I like I try to be more and more aware, mm-hmm. especially right now in this time of, I guess, like, uh like it's very unique to see what's happening in general media. But I still, just as a man, like, know what's in me and my friends and the other men I know. Like, it's the only context of which I understand, like, okay, this must be exactly what racism is like. Because mm-hmm. as a man, there's certain things I hear where it's like, I know if a woman was around, they would not say it. Or they would say it in a way that would be a whole lot different. So I'm sure this is what racism is. But I don't look at him as a sexist, per se. I look at him as like, oh, that's Joe. But it's like Joe... Says a lot of sexist things. He says a a lot of misogynist things. Joe, like, it's like I'm not painting that picture sometimes in my mind. You know, um, as uh, one of the discussions I said today, like, with Russell Simmons, it's it's so weird in, in, in everything he's going through. But, like, on one hand, it's Russell Simmons gave a lot of opportunities to women working in hip hop. But then on the flip side of it, um, you know, Kamora Lee Simmons, who was his wife, he met when she was 15 years old. He's a hip hop producer, going to runway shows, sitting in the front row, and being that the type of business decisions he's making and everything like that, I'm not necessarily saying that uh, he what type of woman he's supposed to pick and whatever relationship they formed as time went on, but it definitely shows like some form of conditioning that that was initially what con- uh, attracted him. To her, and then I look at a lot of the other men I I, I associate with, and I, I look at like what attracted them to the woman, which is objectification too. So, as you talk about like the consciousness that it takes being black, being a woman in a city that is so labor based, is so blue collar, is so many men in this industry. What has that experience been like? And then just being a black woman on top of that, like how have you maneuvered as an entrepreneur and how do you still, you know, find that presence of mind when sometimes it may seem unprecedented?
1: Yeah. You know, I had to figure that out because a lot of young people started asking me questions. You know, I've done so much out of my own nature, out of my mm-hmm. own instincts, out mm-hmm. of uh, whatever, Uh, presence of mind I've had you know and I had to at a certain point really get analytical about it and uh, one of those points became for me at a point when I became aware of the fact that you know you have to define your values You have to be able to know what they are because I was trying to make decisions. I remember in college I asked a professor who I went to a lecture and he was really, really conscious and deep in his discussion. And so afterwards I went to him and I said, how do you know that you're right? Like certain of the demands you're making for black people and certain things you're saying, how do you know you're right? And he said it was uh, based on a value system that was afrocentric, not eurocentric. And so I got to that that it was more he was basing things more about himself than on the other. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it's to come to an understanding, I think um, for us that uh, once you can develop your value system, and identify it, then that helps you to start to come out of the um, come out of the manipulated mind that we have here. Uh, when uh, when uh, Carter G. Woodson, you know, wrote his books, when Malcolm X talked about us being miseducated, bamboozled, you know, mm-hmm. lied to. I mean, there is a there is a whole recognition that you come that you can come to to recognize that the way you see the world and the way you are being your quote-unquote self in the world is based on stuff that was given to you sometimes so subtly you didn't even recognize that you got it you know you just grow up there's a there's a um a story i got out of the reader's digest a long time ago uh, it's a magazine that uh, used to come through, little small magazine that would come through and it had all these. I
0: when I'm at the grocery store and it's like sitting oh, there. Oh, is it still there?
1: <laughs> I didn't know if they still published it or not. My mom uh, actually for a long time cleaned houses of uh, – well-to-do whites out in Bloomfield Hills and all of that and so we were the recipients of a lot of their uh, hand-me-downs mm-hmm. and these Reader's Digest and National Geographics and all that that's how I became mostly aware of those things and I was a reader so I read these Reader's Digests. and one of them had a story one time that said that um, there was this guy he married this woman he was so in love they were so happy they went on a honeymoon they came back she cooked her first meal for him and he saw that she made a ham and she cut off both ends of the ham and threw away what he thought was good meat. And so the dinner was great. He told her so. And he asked her, why did you throw away those pieces of meat? And she said, well, that's how my mom always do. And she's such a good cook. I just followed what she did. So it came an occasion that he went to a family dinner, not long after that. And her mom was there, dad and her grandmother and, you know, the family and they had this dinner and sure enough, his mom cooked the ham, her mom cooked a ham, cut the ends off and threw away what he saw as good meat. Mm-hmm. And so he says, wow, this was fantastic. I really enjoyed meeting everybody in the dinner and it's great. He said, but um, can you tell me, why did you cut the ends off the ham? I, my mom never did that. I just wondered. And she said, well, my, my mother used to do that. And this is his wife's mother now. My mother used to do that. So I just did, you know, did what she did. So He looks at the grandma there and he says, well, um, why did you do that? And the grandma is laughing. She said, because my pan was too short. Mm. That's to me what happens a lot of time within our families and within our generations. That we pick up habits, beliefs, uh, ways of living, Mm -hmm. and we just follow them without any sensible you know there's never any justification research there's no foundation for it other than that's what they did and then when we look into it we find out it's mm-hmm. the pan was too short it was
0: yeah you know a, it's a level of uh i believe even even when it's harmful comfort has a level of yes yes has a level of what it is, it's comfortable. Like it, it's harming me, but it's comfortable.
1: That's two days you know? after Martin Luther King's birthday. You know, we could segue right into there because with all of the complaint that my generation and critique that my generation had about him being too nonviolent and mm-hmm. whatever we thought was better. Here was this courageous man, a young man
0: yeah,
1: who stood in the face of white folks who had shown for generations that they had no problem brutalizing uh, African people to hold their positions. Mm-hmm. And he came in front of them and stood in front of them. And how many black people said to him, man, quit rocking this boat. We know it's tough. We know it's not fair, but we're scared to rock the boat because they might get worse and it may not get better. True. And that's that's uh, what people call human nature. And yet it was his human nature to confront that. Yeah. As, as a young man and to push to make decisions I was listening to one of his speeches uh, the speech he made at the National Cathedral in Washington DC four days before he was assassinated murdered and um, he was speaking to the fact that he had to call him out on the Vietnam War and that many of his people were telling him don't do that a reporter said you, gonna, you know aren't your donations dwindling now that you know you're coming out with this others thing instead of just sticking to the civil rights he says hey i i can't my integrity isn't attached to the finances of our organization he says i have to speak out for the wrongs and he did and and was murdered for that and so you know who you gonna be who you gonna be how when you come up on the the um dichotomies the falsehoods the you know yeah it's, who you gonna be in it
0: it's, it's very it's very trying and it tests you mm-hmm. especially you use the term that in economics and business is what I love <laughs> the term value and values because value is essentially what every person in business is saying like that's what you're pushing for but personal values and ethics are are so counterproductive to what can be an economic value it you know because you you almost have to like to set that personal standard before you even go into something and to even challenge what that is and to look at it like well you know eventually I'll make enough money, and then I can go back, and then I can give to or whatever. And I mean, you know, who who knows what will happen if you know taking those stances and making those decisions at those times, uh, as people would say, the clarion call. It is very, it's trying, it's difficult. You generally lose a lot more, you know. Colin and Capers, that goes
1: that goes straight to your value, though. See, yeah. that goes straight to the values, and this is why we end up having the push and pull within our organizations within our families you know when it when it gets down to the moment of what is the value that we're going to make a decision on yes which which thing is going to uh set the tone for our movement or non-movement what what's what how are we arriving to these decisions mm-hmm. and uh i respect the fact that all of us come on this planet with this divine spark that looks forward to its upward elevation and then we've got to figure out how in the midst of oppressive forces and lust and you know weak humanity and military forces and you know, the influences of media and peers and whatever, whatever. How do we figure out how to stand on a value or, uh, yeah, how to stand on a value? And so, you know, this to me is the life. Uh, The, you know, the distractions of this world are so well established and are so well um you know glitterized glamorized mm-hmm. made to believe to be the thing that uh, sometimes especially a person like myself people are people come up on me more than once in my life with Gia, if you would just put on some little pumps and a business suit with your capacities and you know we could turn you into this and you could be doing that. and But it just wasn't satisfying to me.
0: And what's, uh, what's crazy is that same point is sort of the same point that uh, the the lady from the church when she was saying, you know, you really wanna be a lawyer. But at the heart of mm-hmm. it, having that value system and reaching that value system is happiness. And even the person saying, you know, put on the pumps, and wear the business suit is giving their interpretation of what they feel happiness is for you. Because it's like, well, you're gonna make so much money that that'll equate to happiness. So this is why you're doing it. So this is what I find difficult at times that a person can offer something that's not necessarily the right place or space for you without understanding where you're at Mm -hmm. in your mind and heart. But it's non malicious. Exactly. It's not intentionally wrongful. Don't
1: have to create a conspiracy theory for everything and everybody Mm -hmm. because the opportunity here is for you. Here's another one. I got lots of these metaphors and Mm. uh, parabels, Mm. but um, here's another one. You go to a place that has a gigantic buffet, they have endless tables. With meats and seafoods and pastas and veggies and fruits and desserts and breads and, you know, everything. Are you mad when you get there? Or are you really happy that you can pick up your plate and you can go through this buffet and pick up what you really, really like? What is going to bring you satisfaction? And are you mad because somebody else comes through with their plate and decides to pick things other than what you would have chosen? No. And, you know, in this buffet of life, this is where I, I, I have guided my thinkings and my feelings Mm -hmm. to being allowing for myself to pick and choose that which is fulfillment, satisfaction to me. And to give space and allowance for others to choose what gives them fulfillment and satisfaction. Which And in that utopian moment, everything mm-hmm. is cool. What happens, though, is when I sit down to eat and the person next to me wants to smoke a cigar and blow the smoke in my face. Now this utopian moment where we both got to choose what we want. Now we got to figure out something else. Because whose right is it to do which thing And Our humanity shows up And there we are
0: Yeah which Which I was going to say Is the counterintuitive. <laughs> it's the exact opposite Of everything that I'm taught In business Because business is based On scarcity That there is not Abundance for everybody Everybody will not Get to the buffet It is really Only one buffet ticket And that buffet ticket Is for you And you need to Not only have the only buffet ticket you need to make sure that it's only going to be chicken for you it's only going (laughs) to be vegetables for you it's only going to be you know because the thought process is you know everything about economics or american economics and capitalism is based on the idea of scarcity there are only so much there's only so many resources and it's only enough supply and demand and at that point it'll reach so to think that there is abundance that there is enough opportunity, that there, you know, that everyone could eat, is against the thought process of the root of the conditioning. As you talk about, like, what what have we been conditioned to think? Period. You know, it's like, okay, you know, I'm gonna give to charity. So it's like I I'll wake up at eight o'clock in the morning. I'm going to serve some soup at the soup kitchen for Thanksgiving. But then, you know, real Thanksgiving is going to be when I go to my house. Mm-hmm. It's not to think to yourself like, let me go get this person I've labeled as homeless and just say, hey, why don't you just come to my house? It's That's, that's not the thought process because the thought process is like, OK, we're going to make a place and a space for this other person. So we're going to give them a buffet, but it'll be after we figured out. At what supply and demand point their buffet is versus my buffet, which is with my family and in my house in my Thanksgiving.
1: And it's all choice and uh, it's all choice. Mm -hmm. And and this is what happens like we get uh, we get conditioned into believing that uh, in limitation, in limitation, in lack, uh, in scarcity, uh I I want to believe that my having three things is dependent upon you only having one. Yep. And that is a belief that one can take on. That's a value system, capitalism and American capitalism mm-hmm. is a value system that one can take on and one can operate from. Mm-hmm. And then there are other choices. And that's what I was telling somebody today who called me and said they were getting ready to make a bad choice. They have a health condition that means they should not be standing on their feet for long periods of time. And he was going to take a job out of his sense of desperation to have income that requires him to stand on his feet 10 to 12 hours a day, four to five days a week. And I said, well, what you've done is you've agreed to be desperate. You've agreed that that's the only choice that's there for you. He said, but I've been looking, I haven't found anything else. And you're now agreeing that you won't find anything else, that you must endanger your health in order to have some income because there's just nothing else possible. You have agreed to that. I said, now, don't get me wrong. I can't point my finger right now at the solution for you. I just, however, know that what's going to happen is within two weeks, you're going to call me in crisis and need me to try to help you get out of crisis. Because we know that you're taking that position is going to put your body back in crisis. And so this is what I'm saying to people. All of us within our own on our own path, on our own life's journey, we get to make these choices. And some of us. As my dad explained it to me and gave me words for it, some of us hear a different drummer. Okay. Some of us have chosen to follow a different rhythm. And what I'm grateful for is that so far in my life, me following a different rhythm uh, has worked for me. I'm not saying it's always been easy. I'm not saying that I have never had setbacks that I've never been without, that I've never been at a point where I just wondered, oh, wow, if I make some other decisions that go against the values I've taken on, I could probably crawl out of this problem and, you know, be okay. I'm not saying I have been faced with that. It's just that I made some decisions and I'm most happy when I live within my decisions. And I'm saying to people, you have every opportunity to make your decision and find your satisfaction within your decision. Because what I know is that there's yin and yang in life. There's the thing and then there's its shadow. And so, you know, what looks right for me, you know, I go and get me a beet, carrot beet juice, you know. And I drink that carrot beet juice, and it gives me a feeling of energy. I had a friend that I said, Well, try the carrot beet juice, and she had all day, you know, gastric disturbances. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I'm not gonna declare that all my choices are best for everybody else. Uh-huh. I'm going to know what's best for me, I'm gonna share what I've learned for those who are interested or who will listen. And then I'm going to really be okay with everybody making choices because what I am clear about, at least from where I stand, is that I didn't come through like that meteor that showed up here. It had to come from forty, fifty thousand 50,000 miles <laughs> away, right? And I didn't come from way out in the cosmos somewhere through the whole process that it has taken for me to arrive at the level of human to get a good job and have a nice car. That just was not my mission. That's not my level of satisfaction. And so I'm pushing towards what satisfies in Gia. Because when when it's my time or my decision to leave this physicalness, I really just want to be happy with myself, and I just want to happy myself so, on up out of this. So
0: six-year-old in
1: mhm, was on it was, already. Was,
0: was forward thinking.
1: <laughs> yes, I, and that's what they tell you. Like
0: 360 back to the six-year-old Ingeia. Everybody
1: get real with the real because you come in here complete. The thing that has to happen is you have to be manipulated and um, conditioned so that you can fit into the society's needs and expectations of you. Mm-hmm. But when you got here, you were totally complete. It always blows my mind when a baby is born. And the baby knows to suckle. The baby knows when it's placed near the breast to suckle. Mm-hmm. That's a mind-blowing thing to me. I mean, it
0: knows how to breathe. I
1: mean, just, you understand? And how many, Just, just mm-hmm. so much time after birth. It knows what to do to sustain and set itself on a path of life and growth. So you come in here pretty well set up for what is required. And if you're lucky, you land into some people who will love you into it. But there is this overarching society, quote unquote, mm-hmm. and we are evolving to understand our place on this planet from where whatever your family's legacy was to where you are now and each generation we you know we pass the torch you know we Mm -hmm. do the harriet tubman baby take this and run Mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying let's have one free i'll stay here and hold them off you get free Mm -hmm. literally and figuratively i like it every day brother i like it mama (laughs) and g as i
0: always say this is one of my one of my big homies uh, definitely in philosophy, it can be esoteric, but these are the 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 lessons and grounding it takes to deal with the journey in artistic entrepreneurship as a black person in Metro Detroit. Because Lord knows it takes a lot of the quotes I have up in my hallway <laughs> a lot of the balance, a lot of the theories, a, a lot of different approaches just knowing that different things could be reality and so much of it is just witnessing it. So as I see you do what you do, it's like, okay, it's a place in the space. It's that's a place it. In the space.
1: And that's what that's what someone did for me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I tell you quickly, I, I wanted to make movies. But I just didn't believe I had been told when I was in college, I mean, in high school, that I wanted to take drafting. And the man said, you just want to take drafting because you want to be with the boys. I said, no, my brother does it at home. And I really find it interesting. He's like, that's not for girls. And then uh, when I wanted to make movies, I was told, well, and you're really much more academic. I don't think you're really a technician type of person. You have to have tech, you know, you have to deal with technology to make movies. So I snuck into it. And once I was able to see that I could do it, then I went forward. Mm. Uh, but the whole,
0: well, um, oh, I forgot the train of well, thought. Well, I think your point in your train of thought was accepting that limitation. That in accepting the limitation is something that's, that's extrinsic. And then you make it intrinsic. And then, you know, that's the elephant with the shackle. Um, I, I, you know, accepting energetically that success and whatever your form of success and whatever your path is, it's so important. And then sometimes you have to, I think, shake the energy of people that will accept, you know, every form of whatever failure or disappointment or complaint. You know, I know I have to or I'm saying sometimes you have to. I know <laughs> personally, Carrie Frazier cannot sometimes energetically be around the spirit of Cannot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or or will not, or it ain't gonna happen, because a lot of the things I do takes the spirit of yes it will happen, I, I need it to happen. You gotta project it into reality. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So to be around the spirit of can't it, it it it's just not an energy I can vibe with. As much as I love the people, as much as I think you know they're talented, they're skilled and successful in other ways, it's like, I, you know, sometimes I just need to be around that spirit of like, yep, I'm about to make it happen.
1: Well, you know, when you want water, they have shown within science that you got to have H2O. And so if you have, you know, the HB and hydrogen, you need two of those and you need one oxygen and those joined together. Now you got a molecule of water, right? Mm-hmm. So if you get a C, which is carbon, and you get CO2, You don't have water anymore right Mm -hmm. that's that's not going to be water and so I think that very often in life like when people are not where we're at when they're not when what they say or how they move doesn't mesh with us with our statements and movements I think it's a good thing because then it keeps us from joining with energy that's not going to result in what it is that we really want Mm -hmm. and you know, it's like a it, it can't always be spoken, and sometimes we miss those cues because later on we'll say, you know i fe- it just didn't feel right like when he said something i it, it hit me the wrong, but I thought, okay, I'll give him a chance. Mm-hmm. but when it's when it's not that which is needed to build what you want to build, and the fact of the matter is that I couldn't even be here today, Kari, if everybody was making in Kai decisions. I couldn't even be here today. And Gia Kai didn't build an automobile. So I wouldn't have had an automobile to ride in. Mm-hmm. And Gia Kai didn't mine some, well, I guess you don't mine it, but whatever you do to get the gasoline to the pump, mm-hmm. you know? I didn't do any of that. Mm-hmm. I didn't do any of that, and I wouldn't have been here today had those things not been in place. And so, you know, we're grateful that there are all these varying decisions being made and all these varying energies uh, playing out we're just interested to have space for
0: our expression i like it Mm -hmm. so here are some classic detroit is different questions okay uh what was your very first car and what year did you get it and what year was it made
1: I had a Sprint. It was a Chevy Sprint. It was one of the first little cars that they made here. As yeah, matter of right, fact, I've never even
0: heard of a Chevy exactly. Sprint. Exactly,
1: <laughs> and this was uh, uh, probably thirty years ago or something like that. Hmm. And it was a new car. It was my first car. I had gotten a job with General Motors, and um, mm. that was my first car.
0: So it was one of those things where it's like you better drive a GM.
1: Well, no, actually, what it was was I needed a car. I had Dedica okay. was a baby, and I was getting on the bus. Luckily, I li- I worked off of Woodward, lived off of Woodward. The shoe lady was on Woodward, mm-hmm. and so I would get on that Woodward bus, get Inditica, drop her at school, get back on the bus, go to work. Mm-hmm. Get back on the bus. Stop at the grocery store. Get back on the bus. Pick up Indica. Get back on the bus with groceries and Indica to get home. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And the man I worked for said, "You know, you need a car." I said, "Yeah, I've never had one." And so he called. Then that was the hookup. That was who he knew. It was funny because when I worked at Chrysler, I had a car that wasn't a Chrysler, and uh, you know, you couldn't park closest to. I was, mm-hmm. you know, man, I was the manager's secretary and so i couldn't park close to the door because you couldn't park close Mm -hmm. to the door i didn't even know about that stuff till i got there oh
0: yeah yeah the culture and i don't blame yeah i
1: ain't mad at him i ain't (laughs) mad at him
0: so uh do you remember the first place you went when you got the car
1: yeah yeah i do because you know my girl Luvinia kaduma I don't know if you know her son, Karanji Kaduma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah well, this was my girl. This was my sister friend, uh, Lavinia. And so I got that car. I drove straight to her house, mm. and I parked it in her driveway, and we were congratulating. She was celebrating with me. And then I get in the go get in the car to go home, and it won't start. Ain't that I true. had to call the dealer. They had to tow the car and replace something in it so that I ain't could drive true. the car <laughs> she with was at like, We cracked she up. She was looking at you like... We Ooh. cracked ain't up because, up. you know, we look at all the symbolism of things. Uh-huh. And uh, she was like, you must not have really believed you supposed to have that car. <laughs> and I said, I think it was because there was something going to go wrong with that car. And I got it fixed now, and I ain't got to mm-hmm. worry about it. So, yeah, we that was <laughs>
0: okay
1: yep she's she's passed on now that was one good good sister
0: okay mm-hmm. alright um end of the fireworks uh they just wrapped up you're on Jefferson and Woodward and you're DJing what are three songs you're playing for the crowd
1: well knowing me it's gonna be some funk it's okay. probably gonna be some earth wind and fire you gotta give a song oh I gotta give the name of the song yep Okay so let's see um, I'm going to play One Nation Under a Groove Parliament Funkadelic
0: Okay I'm with it
1: uh, Let's see I'm trying to think of which Earth Wind and Fire song I'm going to play ah, ah. Boogie um, Boogie, Wonderland. Boogie Wonderland I'm about to say Underground <laughs> Boogie Wonderland And let's see I probably try to throw some jazz in on there But let's see a third uh, song you know a rhythm that I really really like is that song. Um, Woohoo! Oh, let it whip from the dance. That's I like that so rhythm. I like funk. that. Ri- I told you it's gonna be some <laughs> funk. We partying after the fireworks. <laughs> what <are> we doing? <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, people dancing <laughs>
1: We gonna dance and we, You know this is what I do I throw events I want people to come I want them to be inspired I want them to be happy I want them to have an experience Where they can be in a crowd of thousands of other people And everybody can just be cool Everybody can have a good time Everybody can find their space within that And when they leave I want them happy mm-hmm. I want them to feel good Yeah, I want to dance my way past them fireworks. Okay. All right.
0: And last question. You can rename Woodward after one Detroiter. Who Mm. is it and why?
1: Rename Woodward after one Detroiter. Who is it and why? Wow. Trying to go back in my mind, think about the Detroiter who made the biggest impression on me. In my development so many people i think just quickly because i'm flooding you know trying to flood my brain here i would say irma henderson okay irma henderson was really 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 a smart loving deep woman and she did so ma'am catherine blackwell just came up i mean there are so many of these uh you know heavyweights from that generation who were service-minded people who had a strong sense of their own value system operated out of it fully and made you know strides that not only benefit themselves but benefited the community and and so many persons
0: okay all right. Mama Henderson, definitely, definitely one of the big homies of some <laughs> of my big homies. And Mama Barnes and Joanne Watson. Mm-hmm. Um, and so many others, you know. Very, so many others. Almost like every, when you look through the Detroit City Charter, almost everything is like founded from our offices. Man,
1: Detroit is the whip. When I was in college, this brother who was from Ethiopia, my, one of my professors, uh, Haile Garima. He said that uh, when they would be in discussions talking about, you know, the world coming to a change from out of the colonial type of domination and its vestiges, you know, that um, they saw Detroit as the center Hmm. for that change because so many dynamics had come from this city. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, and they were in a whole nother country Thinking about it so Detroit you I have met I, I have a film I want to make called wise women I have known and then of course there would be you know a whole bunch of cool brothers is another film I want to make
0: mm-hmm.
1: because I just look at the magnificence uh, you know the magnificent opportunities I've had to meet some really really um, wonderful deep loving you know, impactful people. And so many of them are from the city of Detroit. I mean, just think about it. You just, I I think of just so many, I even right now popped up was Harold McKinney. And not only was he a master uh, jazz musician, composer, you know, performer, but Harold was a deep, deep thinker. He studied the etymology of words. He studied uh, science and the cosmos he, he it was just a whole nother level of all that uh, he brought to the party I mean uh, just so many Roy Brooks another master who uh, not only was a rhythm master one time I Roy came to an event and it was outdoors it was cloudy and just uh, he said well what do you want me to do I said I wish you could make the sun come out he said oh okay so he starts his show and he does this thing. The clouds parted. Hilarious. The sun came out and shone over him and the bandstand. Hilarious. And then he came down and I went up to announce the next band and the clouds came back. And I came back and said, Roy, the clouds came back. He said, well, you didn't tell me you wanted to be sunny all day, baby.
0: Hilarious. <laughs> yeah. his, his music, his music uh, is phenomenal. I was actually mm. talking to... Um, Jallo earlier today mm. but I didn't even know who Roy Brooks was I just oh. also happened to go to an event that Jallo did at uh, the Down River Campus at Prechter you and, were
1: there that night I was there and uh, mm-hmm.
0: and I was like man why didn't I know about this guy I need to sample his own catalog or something but <laughs> he was like yeah. Like, yeah. like yeah Roy Brooks was phenomenal I'm telling you another person
1: who it, it's deep man I, I met a brother uh, elder Uh, When I had just come back into Detroit, and I was doing some something, and I forget how I was introduced to this brother, but his name was F. uh, Snowflake Grigsby.
0: That definitely sounds like an interesting person to me.
1: You know, and Mr. Grigsby was an elder when I met him. If Mm. he wasn't 80, he was just shy of it when I met him. Mm. And he had been uh, involved in the library and all this stuff, but it, it turned out... Mr. Grigsby had gotten a degree in pharmacy, and when he came to Detroit, they wouldn't allow him to uh, exercise his skill in pharmacy, and uh, as a pharmacist. And so he took a job at the post office, and he told me about how many of our folks ended up going to the post office or other federally-backed uh, institutions in order to, you know, college grads trying to find a way to have a job, uh, you know, above the status of menial. Mm-hmm. And so he said, you'll find a lot of brilliant people at the post office because mm-hmm. the, it was only the federal government who would hire blacks at of pay that would, you know, lift their status. And um, he was one of those persons. Hmm. I just think about like, you know, you think about how many of our people went into the ministry. Not necessarily because they were really, really um, convinced of the truth of the religion that they chose, but because they were leaders. Mm -hmm. And this was a a legitimate leadership opportunity that was allowed in this society for black men at that time. Mm -hmm. And think of how many of our brilliant leaders, you know, go back to the people of the church, especially in the civil rights movement, it was shown how many of those men and women, but especially they highlighted those men who stood their grounds, held their principles and fought for their rights and for the rights of their communities and the mm-hmm. nation of black people. So, you know, just, uh, just well, think of the musicians, you know, they were brilliant masters, yeah, yeah. geniuses.
0: Most definitely. So I'm, I'm going to say in, <laughs> in the true Kari spirit, <laughs> I can't wait to see those because I know that that will get off the ground. It's just a matter <laughs> of when it will get off the ground. Yes, uh, but sooner than later, as I, I can even announce it on this one, I'm going to do a Detroit is different film festival. So oh, I look to have those films in the mix by year. I don't know. By year three, probably. I think you will run start of three. Thank you. Thank you. You'll get there. That's what I'm carving
1: out more time now in the busyness of my life because major public events are um, that's a very busy pursuit. There's just sure. there's sure. just a multitude of small details and so much communication is required that it really, really can take over my existence.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. The. The. Just for everybody listening that's, that's entering their consulting journey, the bigger the check, the more the meetings. <laughs> yeah. The bigger the check, the ah. more the meetings, the more the emails, the oh more the group gosh. emails, the more the, you know.
1: When it's, when it's in its height, like I go to five, six meetings a day. It's literally go from one meeting to another and take all these notes about things that have to be done. Yeah. And then go home and I'll have a whole page of email that wants to be returned. And the five phones and five emails that I relate to are all wanting some response. Yep.
0: And. And and yeah. And it's like you you find yourself answering the same question 17 times in different ways. Yes. Do you just want to do it this other way? Right. (laughs) It's no no button to press like that. You have to figure out your own corporate language of saying that. But yes, get ready for the get ready for the meetings.
1: That's right. And you have to, you know, the the thing that has worked for me the best is that I really love what I do, especially the results of what I do. It's mm-hmm. so satisfying to design something and have people come and it works. And, you know, like when you make a movie and they laugh at the humor yeah. and they, you know, it's so at these events, it's great to see that people come and then to hear their remarks about what a great time or, you know. Uh, that is what feeds me to cause me to show up again because oh, oh, yeah. it's re- it's really a lot to do. But uh, I'm grateful, you know, to be able to be there and to within the uh, you know within the changing demographics of the population numbers here in Detroit to really stand for inclusion um, and to recognize that. Uh, you know, all of us uh, have especially mu- much what I do is entertainment, all of us have forms of entertainment that are great and worthy to be uh, given the stage. And to really stand for that, to stand for the mix and to stand for the opportunities for all
0: and And let me say this as as a person has gotten a couple of the contracts in this quote unquote New Detroit. I do think it's not as difficult as some people, uh, some black people make it seem. Like some of it, I know it's hard to get in the door and make a presence of mind, but some of it is being prepared, being ready, and being in the mix and having a suggestion. You'd be surprised, you know, where following your passion, knowing what should happen. I, I think that some of the organizations black or white or just period more established are more open to creativity. If you have it, you know, you, you can't just have the complaint. You got to have the, all right, this could be better if we did it this way. And I've designed it. You may not get that meeting that day. You may not get it that year, but you stay at it. You'll be surprised. You'll be sitting in the mix and you'll say, Oh man, I can't believe that this happened. It happens. It's it,
1: you know, there's, there's, Everything that's you know, I used to think it was real simple. Like it I thought that if you were living on a block and there was a you know, children were having a lot of difficulty crossing the street and there needed to be a stop sign put at that block to assist that, Mm -hmm. that it was just that simple, you know, that we could just say, Hey, this common sense. Let's put a stop sign down here and let's help these kids cross the street safely. But it turns out that there's all kind of stuff because, first of all, there's 40 houses on, you know, with the mm-hmm. two sides of this block. Not everybody agrees to everything. So, and somebody wants to argue for a red uh, traffic light there, not a mm-hmm. stop sign. And some store owner says, I don't want stop sign right here. You know, mm-hmm. it, it just I found out it wasn't that simple. It wasn't because there are so many of us involved. And so this is my story of, you know this is my, I don't want to say my story, but this is the way I uh, approach it. And I'm saying the approach that I'm suggesting, that's what I want to say. This is Mm -hmm. my suggestion to young entrepreneurs, young people in their consultancies. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Always aim to be your best. Always um, strive to have as much Education or as much experience to sharpen your skills to uh, learn how to tell your story uh, well and how to present well and have your paperwork in order and whatever is the requirement within the field that you're in Mm -hmm. work to have that well uh, to have that in order so that you can present well. Mm Absolutely. Be fearless. Go after all kinds of things, things that you think you're not going to get. Mm-hmm. I remember the first time I asked the brother, could I stage man? He was like, oh, wow. I would have never asked you because I didn't think this was something you would want to do. Mm-hmm. So if I hadn't, and I was, I asked him real quiet at first mm-hmm. and he couldn't hear me. And then I had to say it with mm-hmm. voice and I did it, you know, because I didn't think he wanted me. So, yeah, you got to do all of that, but also know that there is some BS in the mix. Oh, I think it's a lot. And the thing, however, to know is that that there is BS in the mix all over the world, everywhere, whether it has Mm -hmm. to do with color, whether it has to do with class, whether it has to do with gender, whether it has to do with dialect. I mean, there's it's Mm -hmm. everywhere. So just know that that is one of the factors and then continue to live, continue to move forward, continue to vision, continue to expect uh, you know, positive, uh, a positive uh, result because you, whatever you take on as your obstacle becomes your obstacle.
0: I, I yeah. I, I mean, I, I hate to sound so much like the secret or Deepak Chopra, but, <laughs> but yeah, the, it, those obstacles are there and yeah. it's real, but it's, it's like the Pistons used to look at playing in the Boston garden. It's dead spots in the floor, but it's still a hoop and I'm going to get it through. And I, all I'm saying is, have your suggestion ready and just don't have a complaint ready ha, mm-hmm. have the suggestion mm-hmm. because through that it's going to create other opportunities they say so don't complain
1: don't explain yeah
0: so it's it's mm-hmm. I, I just I, I think it's a lot yeah there are a lot of biases i mean sometimes yeah. even more so than racial bias in this city it may be nepotism you mm-hmm. know what i'm saying right. or or, or, or relationships right. or uh, i mean i like God people
1: who that. print neatly I had to deal with that because I like neat print. It's just one of my little things, and it—you know what I mean? Yeah. So it,
0: Scrabble handwriting, maybe I would look at it, it right, right, and then I'm and like, Ingea, Ingea, calm down, like Ingea,
1: like, calm down, like. But, but
0: then it's it's, it's uh, other it's other biases or whatever. Right. But I, I definitely know a lot of times we are like that guy that that you spoke to about the stage manager. Mm-hmm. Like there are opportunities that present themselves. It may not be right now because I know you want the opportunity right now because Lord knows it's it's the start of the year. I need some new contracts like ever. I want it right Right. now but I know I got to throw the fishing that's out there and they may catch three, four years from now. Mm -hmm. Staying Mm -hmm. on the track, it's a marathon, it ain't a sprint and and being in that mix and not just being limited by what that is because that opportunity is going to present itself where a person's going to say, all right, come on in, what you got? Exactly. And And sit there and say, Oh man, I was complaining so much that I didn't, I didn't even get it together. Think what, what I got to offer? That's right. You know, and That's then I'm sitting it. in the room with you, like, well, uh, I, I know they can do it,
1: but. Uh, and it's not always what you assume. I learned that when, um, when I was doing, I was promoting my own stuff, and this was back before social media, where we had to do a lot of mail. Mm -hmm. And so I would uh, put all these flyers and info sheets and whatever, whatever together and I would mail out 3,000 pieces of mail, whatever it was, I don't know, 300 pieces of mail, whatever. And um, I learned one time I didn't have enough money to afford all of that. So I finally made just these big postcards and I sent these postcards that were now no longer in an envelope. Mm -hmm. And then when the event happened one person came to the door and I said hey how did you find out about our event and she said well I'm a post woman Mm -hmm. and I saw some of these come through and I read it looked interesting so I came and I thought wow so that's when I stopped sending mail and started sending postcards because it wasn't intended for her but she saw it and came the person it was intended for didn't show up yeah and so that's why I say you don't know when you put it out there what who's going to be the one you don't when you show up and say hey i do this and this mm -hmm. and you're looking at ford motor company they may not call it may be a small company that calls you but by doing Mm. that small company's business you end up finding your way into a larger opportunity you just don't know how it's going to come
0: yeah like i can't you know the what puts you with uh the Detroit Festival of the Arts. Like, you you can't replicate, because right. I know it's, it's some young, hungry events team coordinators that are like, I could do better than what NG can do right mm-hmm. now. Yep. But nothing's going to put, you know, unless they find a time machine or something, <laughs> back in that situation to grow with those relationships over time. And relationships matter a whole lot. And yes, even sometimes how you deal with, as you're talking about, um... You know, those obstacles, this BS in the game, it's going to be BS in the game on your own end. That's right. There will be mistakes that happen. And then how accountable you are. And sometimes people are are legitimate to say, you know what? I wanted him to do better, but he came and he said or, you know, Kari Mm -hmm. straight up told me, look, you're not going to get what you want. When when I know you you said you want it, when you pay for it, it just is what it is. This is my response to it. And this is what I'm going to do. If you like a different course of action and to meet about it, let's do it. I'm not ducking it. It just is what it is. Sometimes even that allows people to grow in in that business relationship of knowing like, okay, even in a crisis situation. I like the way that this person conducted themselves.
1: Yeah. I mean, you got to stand up. You might lose because you stand up and tell the truth. You know what I mean? Like, it it could be very well that you call me and say, and gee, I'm not going to be able to deliver this at 8 o'clock tomorrow. And it might be a situation where I got to have it at 8 o'clock yeah. tomorrow. So yeah. I might have to say, well, I'm sorry, but I got to get somebody direction. that can get it here tomorrow at 8 o'clock tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But I will remember that you called me and told me that. Not that I had to wait till 8 o'clock in the morning when you... I call you and say I don't see you. Oh, yeah, nothing. Not <laughs> you that, know what I'm saying? Yeah, and so, so you hard. might lose, but you
0: yeah.
1: but you gain in your integrity. Yeah. And in, what happened, I found that out when I was shooting films, uh, that uh, people go with who they can trust because they just, especially black filmmakers, they got this one opportunity to do something well. They can't take a chance on somebody who hasn't proven themselves, and especially someone oftentimes who hasn't proven themselves to them. It's very scary to bring somebody in off of someone else's (sighs) recommendation because that doesn't always pan out.
0: Because that is is really the, the root of this whole discussion. And what I've been thinking through has been some of the toughest things in entrepreneurship working with any people, but especially our people. I think when I say our people, I mean young, talented black people to energetically accept success. Like sometimes seeing those obstacles, uh, I was doing an event at Baker's the other day and one of of the people that I had running the camera noticed something that I thought was very insignificant. And I was thinking to myself like, why wasn't she thinking more about the angles? Now what she noticed that was insignificant to me was like, "Eh." but it's like, okay, I still need to train. I need to. I need to put more into this, and and then recognize, like, okay, I know that you're in a presence of mind and being in an event, and you expect people to conduct themselves like this. But it is what it is. It's alcohol. It's fun. Even though we're doing songs of social justice, people are people. Are people? We can't focus on that. We got to focus on what we pull from the content. And mm-hmm. and this is just like a like okay. It, it's it's learning lessons for me as well. But I, I do think those relationships what you can rely upon and knowing that those opportunities um i i, I think we will get another opportunity I, I you know but you know knowing you know taking that responsibility and what you can trust and how you can trust them and that's mm-hmm. s- that's the bias as the young entrepreneur you're fighting against that yeah but you gotta you gotta yeah. You got to climb that mountain.
1: When I was young, I used to really, I could, you know, I've been a very capable person for a lot of my life. And so I couldn't understand when somebody would say, well, and you, you know, I don't think you're really ready yet. And I would be like, what do you mean? I'm not ready. I feel I'm ready now. However, having gone through a few, uh, you know, decades of experience. I see where the immaturity or the lack of experience can be very costly or can't be trusted in certain situations. Oh, yeah. What I also have found, though, for myself is that I have opportunity many times to provide uh, young black persons mm-hmm. an opportunity to learn, uh, you know, to gain that experience in the things that I do. And so it is true that I can remember I hired this young woman. She had skills. She just didn't have experience specifically in production. Does it go? Mm -hmm. And um, she didn't specifically have skills in production. And so there were things she would not think to look for. You know what I mean? So, you know, like if you are hiring a cab to pick up artists at the airport, Well, your experience will make you go, oh, let me check and see how much stuff they're bringing with them Mm -hmm. because they may need a van instead of a car. Yes. Well, she didn't have production experience. And so one night after 11 o'clock, I'm at the office going back over the stuff that she has done. So that I can make sure she's hit all these little marks, which she didn't. So I'm making notes in there so I can meet with her in the morning and show her the stuff that she didn't know. And so when I get with her that next morning, she had a willing spirit to learn, made notes, and didn't repeat, generally speaking, the same mistake twice. Well, I was real happy with this sister because I was able, she was learning and growing. Mm -hmm. It wasn't wasted energy for me she didn't have an attitude for me looking over her and micromanaging her uh, you know which sometimes people show up uh, with that attitude and you know mommy and I could do it I got that you can do it I got that you believe you can do it right now though I'm assuring myself that you've done it correctly so we're going to go back over this and I'm going to let you know whether or not I feel it's complete and that's the position that you're in right now because I hired you to assist me. Once I know that you have it, then I can hire you to take it over while I do something else. I'll be thrilled. Mm-hmm. But right now, I can't show up tomorrow and tell them, oh, she didn't know what to do. She didn't get it done. They yeah. hired me. Yeah, and, and
0: that's, <laughs> oh man, it's so much, like, like I say, I, I get with Mama and Gia, we, we can talk we for go hours forever. because, is so many nuances as you touched on something that i know as in as i expand my team i take for granted some of the things that i know that are like oh man this has been common sense and commonplace for me for forever right. because like i tell people up ain't up. not as far as up is and down ain't as far as down is it's, I like that Frank Sinatra, "That's Life" song. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? It's like you, it, it's like we're rolling the dice. I'm in the game. I'm, I'm. I, this is what I do. But uh, you know, so we ran into uh, this past weekend. You know, it was too many people. We turned away as many people that ended up coming. You know, and it is. It whether it's a like packed house or whether it's five people. It's it's new. Opportunities and challenges that present themselves with whatever as you do an event or just planning things. But in, in speaking about events, you you need to know how to handle it either way. But people connect to that energy of like, oh, it's five people. These are the five people that's supposed to show up. Mm-hmm. And let's do it for mm-hmm. these five people. And I definitely have this for that events person talking. My biggest and best opportunities have always come just from a performer and a person planning an event. From when it's not many people in the crowd. Mm. And I know a lot of people are like, you know, you don't want to plan an event, only 10 people come. Every time I've done an event where it's 10 people, but I still have kept the spirit, like I still want to give the best show or the Mm -hmm. best production as possible. What ends up happening is those 10 people now take the spirit, like more people need to see this. Mm -hmm. How do we do this again? I never get that when I have a packed house. When I have a packed house, people are like, "Oh man, you did good," but they like kind of leave it at like, "You were supposed to do good." Like it's a different type of ownership with the intimate crowd, mm. especially when it's a lot of seats that aren't filled. So just for the person doing an event, I would I would urge of you, and just from Kari's experience doing an event, never get down for the people, never. Um, Discredit the people that did come that's For the right. people who did not come That's right
1: Yeah you gotta serve It it happens We used to do this thing called the um, Cinema Cafe And we created this opportunity At the First Unitarian Universalist Church In the uh, Red Door Theater mm-hmm. And we would screen uh, African, African American And international films
0: mm-hmm.
1: And so you know That's obviously a niche audience already yes Yes. and so um one night we had this film it was a film about um, uh bob marley and we were screening it at his birth you know his birthday is in february Mm. Yep. and we're screening it at his birthday time and of course that night there was an ice storm Mm. we would say every time we you know we were every other week so it it just seemed every other week there was something so here was this ice storm so we set up everything, and then about 15 minutes you know, after the film was supposed to start, we're like, okay, it's not going to work out, so let's just take it down. So as soon as we started to pack up, we hear this sound at the door. It's two van loads of people who had come from, I can't even remember whether it was Ann Arbor or somewhere, mm-hmm. and they had braved this ice storm because they were all Bob Marley fans, and they wanted to see Uh, this documentary that doesn't show in the theaters at that time you didn't have netflix and all these Mm -hmm. ways to get these independent films and they had come and so we quickly put everything back in place and got them in there and did the do and you know that's my story is that what i learned was that if you set it up you've got to be there you've got to do what you say you're going to do if nobody shows up you be there set ready to go and then What happens is there's a moment, I don't know, there's a moment when it clicks and people start coming and it just starts to move. And sometimes it's within that first year, sometimes it takes three years, but your consistency and you know you're not giving up and using all of these experiences where you set it up and take it down and no one came but you (laughs) learned something special about how to reconnect the sound and Mm -hmm. you know i would Mm -hmm. show when nobody came i would put the movie on and watch it myself and then the next time when people were there i could have a full discussion with them about the film and you know, you just, you got to make it work.
0: <laughs> it's, it's like the karate kid. You're learning karate yes. while, you're, while you're painting. That's <laughs> while right. You're the fence. You didn't know, but it hits you and it becomes more valuable over time. Mm. I say, do it. And that's my event advice. We're going to leave on this. I got to yes, get I, you back. I'm I got to get you back. Well, Most thanks
1: better. so much, Kari. I appreciate the level of the conversation and appreciate the opportunity to share with you and those who listen. Thank you so much.